All right, lovely. Nice. So um, for those of you who were here and for those of you who listened to the recording um, of the last session last week, last week Thursday, you know that we pretty much gave a brief summary of some things that we wanted everyone to actually be aware of as we dive into polls. Zane, uh -huh. I have a question before, um, before you start the Bible study. At the end, do you guys think you to pray over me? Of course, of course. Okay. That's no problem okay. at all. Sorry to interrupt. That's all right. That's no problem at all. Yeah, so we we actually did a, a, a we summarized a few things that that um, we think that it was, would have been good for everyone to be aware of as we get into this book or this letter that Paul wrote, and we actually made it very clear that some of the information that we are covering here may not be very well known in the Westernized Christian community. And so we're taking our time to just cover those things so that you can take them into consideration as we walk into this um into this book of Romans. Because as you know, these gentlemen came from a system that we in the Western world are not very much accustomed to, where they memorize scripture. They are very familiar and they're very familiar with that. And they pretty much speak from the scripture as their paradigm. All right, so today, <coughs> sorry. So I'm going to share my screen here as we continue. Nice, then there we go. <clears throat> All right, so the last and uh, last week we pretty much covered these points as you see on the screen. It's going to go full screen, you know. All right, here we go. time to come up here. Okay. Alright, so we're taking a little time here. Hold on. Stop sharing for a moment. Pull it up. What is that? Wait. All right, here we go. Nicely. Do not just shouting out party of holy sister and precious first lady. 
Oh, this is Patty. How are you? <laughs> good evening. Much good love evening. to all. Much love to you too. Much love to you too. All right. Nice. Is everybody seeing the screen now? Sorry for the little delay. For the little delay. Nicely. All right. So yeah. last. So, all right. Great. Great. So last week we pretty much took a look at who Paul is. Who Paul was. We also took a look at what a Pharisee was. Um, we briefly summarized the lens of the biblical characters. We mentioned that the, that the biblical characters, they pretty much understood what being in God would like using the reference point of the Garden of Eden in that culture. And of course, we, ex- we highlighted the role of the Garden of Eden in the scriptures. The last thing that we covered last week was pretty much what what is christ because as you mentioned everybody in particular speaks about who is christ but not 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 many people really can uh, uh, really understand what christ is all right so just to briefly recover that to, to recapitulate that we mentioned that we i pretty much outlined that the term spirit really comes from the genesis narrative which is in reference to the breath of life and that God in the Genesis narrative from the ancient Hebrew perspective of the narrative breathed the breath of life into Adam which was his thought about himself breathing breathing into into dust and so God became man right we also mentioned when Adam made his decision he voided himself of 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 spirit of um, of spirit and was referred and was referred to by the apostle Paul as ch- the children of um, the children of darkness, which in the context of the Genesis narrative meant the children void of spirit. And when they say void of spirit here, void of the pers- the mindset of God. Right. We also stated that the priests and the prophets of the Old Testament. So that's what you see there. As the from Yahweh Elohim Adam at the left, you see the chart goes down and it goes down. That is the Adam now living according to a subjective identity, which is what you see in Genesis chapter 5, where it states in Genesis chapter 5 that Adam reproduced in his own image and likeness. We mentioned that the the, the, um, the priests as well as the prophets they give well the priest in particular mirrored Adam and Eve in the garden prior to their fall because the tabernacle was a reflection of the garden of Eden in a mobile version Um, I I briefly covered that and so the priests there were meant to reflect Adam and Eve what Adam and Eve would have been in the garden and the same way Adam and Eve were given Adam was given the instruction to keep the garden so the priests were given the instructions to keep inside of um, to keep the temple as genesis was referred to as a garden temple right we also stated that the that the that the the prophets james actually says in his letter to use the prophets as mentors because just as the priest the prophets pretty much spoke in the identity in the original identity of adam which was yahweh elohim and so they would always speak thus says yahweh or just as the Lord, as it is translated in English. We also stated that Jesus was born 
um, as a man living under the limitations of the man I mean, of the of the Adam in his quote unquote, even though I don't like to don't, use, don't, don't like to use that word, but quote unquote um, fallen state or in his subjective state, and Jesus was uh, went to the cross, nailed that identity to the cross, and rose fully God and fully man, according to Paul in Philippians. And so he is, when we say Christ, we're referring to the identity or the breath of life being breathed back into man again, as we saw with Jesus breathing on the disciples and that being fulfilled in the upper room, where in the union of he and the Father, he breathes on the disciples, he ascends to become all and in all, as Paul stated. And then that is... Um, fulfilled in the upper room where the mighty rushing wind is breathed back into them again so just as Adam man um, just as God breathed the breath of life into Adam now God has breathed himself back into into man and for those of us who come to the acknowledgement of that we are now in Christ is to walk in the fullness of what Adam was originally in the garden which is to walk in the fullness of God, Yahweh Elohim. Yeah, so moving on today. Um, Can I say one thing before we move on? Yes, Holy Sister, go ahead. <laughs> um, today, in thinking on the breath, mm -hmm. the thought came to me, our life is but a breath. You know how that's in the scriptures? Right. Our life is but a breath, but I always thought that meant it's a breath is just short, you know, that our life is quick. But no, our life is the power of God. Exactly. Our life is but the breath of God. Yeah. When it is actually stated in the in the Old Testament, especially in the Psalms, it is it is stated of the Adam in his subjective state. But in Christ, that's no longer that reality. Paul takes time to actually show the reverse in the New Testament, like in First Corinthians and so on. Yes. Where he shows that our breath now is the life of God, eternal life. Isn't that awesome? I just love it. I've been dancing all day. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank you. No problem, no problem. And thank you for sharing that. Night. so today, in particular, here are some considerations that we want to some to, to be mindful of before we actually proceed well pr to proceed for what we're going to be covering here today the first is understanding what couplets are in the scriptures right well, many of us in the westernized christian denominational perspective pretty much read the bible through the lens of a westerner and may not be aware because of the way the bible is translated by king james where the structural differentiations were omitted and things were just translated as is there are many things that were translated and many people are not very much aware of how to go about reading this so we're going to take a look at what couplets are we're also going to take a look at the um the uses of the words hello holy sister how are you <laughs> Yeah, so we're also going to take a look at the use of the words and in the Bible. We use and 
well, I'll explain as you go along. So, the word, the, the, how and that simple word is used in the Bible. For those of you who are, who are hearing this for the first time and have never really looked into the literary construct of the scriptures, this may come as a bit of a, of a, of a surprise. Yeah. Also, how but is used in the Bible. Colons in the Bible, what they actually refer to in the translation, what they mean in the translation, and how semicolons are actually applied in the Bible. Those things are very important for you to take into consideration when you're reading the Bible. All right, and the last thing that we're going to just dive into very briefly, just to give again something to be mindful of, is the relation between the man in the garden and the priests, both in the tabernacle as well as the temple. <clears throat> Right, so we start with what a couplet is. Anybody hearing this for the first time? Couplets. No? Yeah? All right. Well, then we're good here, man. Let's, let's, run, let's run the course. <laughs> nice. So for those of you who may hear this for the first time, I don't want to say that you're hearing that. Um, a couplet is pretty much a form of parallelism and it can function in the, in, the, in the capacity of an amplification in the Bible. Alright, now you have different types of couplets in the Bible that you must take into consideration or else you'll be reading it like a storybook. And if you're reading it like a storybook, it's vital information that you would bypass and then you're going to have a lot of questions because you're going to be seeing things in the Bible that you're really trying not to, you're trying to understand and the answers are right in front of you, but because you're reading it as Western prose, there is going to be a problem. Right? So the first thing we want to take a look at is, synony is synonymous parallelism. Right? So um, synonymous parallelism is pretty much... Hold one sec. Yeah. Yeah, synonymous parallelism, sorry about that, is just as the name suggests. So as I as I was saying just now, you have well, I'm, I'm using the word couplet, right? And a couplet is where there is some sort of um what is being stated is stated in another way in in, in the succeeding line. Right? Now I'm saying couplet here, but really a couplet refers to where there is a repetition as and the different types of parallelism that, that we're going to be taking a, um, taking a look at. But what I should be really saying is parallelism because the parallelism can come not only in couplets, they can also come in triplets. So a synonymous parallelism is present when the notion of the first line is pretty much repeated in the second line. Right? You can see that, for example, in the Psalms. Psalms, Proverbs, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, um, where there is the presence of very strong poetic approach to what is being said, you find that there is a lot of parallelisms, couplets, triplets. Right? The prophets even write it, they, they write with it a lot. The Genesis narrative in particular is also filled with parallelisms. So a good example of this is Psalm 78 verse 1. Right? This is just a random example where you where it says, pay attention, my people, to my teaching. And then the next line is a repetition of the first 
in a different way. It says, be attentive to the words of my mouth. Pay attention, my people, to my teaching. And the second line says, be attentive to the words of my mouth. So that's an example of synonymous parallelism. Right now, I'm highlighting these things because as we go along, mentioning this at the beginning of, of, of this series, because as we go along, these are things that we're going to encounter. And if you're not familiar with it, you are genuinely going to be confused. The second is antithetic parallelism. Antithetic parallelism is stated in opposite terms, which is where you frequently see the Bible use the word but. So, for example, it says in Psalm 1 verse 6, Yahweh protects the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. It's a form of parallelism, but in opposite terms. If you read the book of Proverbs, Psalms, um, Ecclesiastes, Job, Song of Solomon, the prophets, these things are very, very present. Right? They are present in all of the books in the Bible, but very, very rich in those books in particular. The next is formal parallelism. Right? And formal parallelism, where you have two lines that have a formal relationship defined by rhythm or length or line length. Now, unfortunately, because the Bible that you have in your hand is really a translation of the text, what you can identify in the original text in and of itself, it's very difficult as a translator myself, it's very difficult to translate poetry from source language to target language and maintain the cadence, maintain the rhyme, maintain a lot of different things. Right? As a translator, you are pretty much delegated with the responsibility of not of, of communicating what you can in the best way possible without deviating from the context. <laughs> right? um, so because the languages differ, sometimes it's very difficult to find words that would match ident identically what you're translating. So it's, it's basically trans transmitting the idea, transmitting the context, and trying to keep it as close as possible without misleading the reader. Does that make sense? Kanye says no. You're muted. Yeah, you're muted. I'm not, I'm not hearing you. Sorry. That's all right. Go ahead. Um, formal parallel parallelism, is that how you say? Yeah, formal parallelism. I just got really confused on. I I'm trying to keep up with notes so I can study. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, say again? I lost the formal parallelism. Okay. The Sorry. That's all right. <laughs> That's quite all right. Formal parallelism, as I was saying, which is actually also referred to as synthetic parallelism, theologically that is, right? We have two lines that have a formal relationship and usually defined by rhythm or line length. They, um, so, uh, so, uh, so what I was communicating was that in particular, the rhythm and line length, it's very present in the Hebrew text, the original text, 
but when translators try to, to translate that from Hebrew to English, it's not always maintained. Like the line length, for example, as well as the rhythm, the semantic rhythm. When I say semantic rhythm, the words that seem to be used that are repetitive, that sound like a nice little rhyme. It's very difficult for translators to translate it exactly. So a lot of that is not very clearly seen in the English translation. Yeah, does that make sense, everybody? Thank you. No problem, no problem. All right, now in, in, in um, formal parallelism, the couplet contains usually one complete sentence, not coordinated sentences, um, as in antithetic parallelism or synonymous parallelism. It seems like one sentence, but it is definitely a flow and functions in a form sometimes of an amplification. Right? So, for example, Proverbs 25 verse 18 is a good example of that. Where you see it says, like a club, sword, or, or sharp arrow, as the first line, the second line says, is one who bears false witness against a neighbor. So it parallels like a club, sword, or sharp, sharp arrow with the one who bears false witness against a neighbor. Right now, in the Hebrew, it may seem like it has a nice little rhyme, or it, it, the sentences match the, the line lengths, match each other. And so, as I said just now, with the translation, sometimes it's, it's lost. So you really have to pay attention to what you're reading and how and take your time to identify them. And the last parallelism that we're going to take a look at is climatic parallelism. And com um, climatic parallelism can resemble um, amplification at times. So climatic parallelism really combines synonymous parallelism with formal parallelism. Synonymous meaning the two lines are being stated, saying the same thing in two different ways. And uh, formal parallelism, as I mentioned, it may be just one, one line, but it's stated in a way where the subject is actually repeated in the second line in a different way. Right? So a good example of that is Psalm 29 verse 1. It says, a credit to Yahweh, O heavenly ones, a credit, a credit to Yahweh, glory and strength. That's a parallelism, a climatic parallelism. So it, it parallels, O heavenly ones, with glory and strength. Yeah, now these things may seem these these um these things may seem a bit I don't mean to try to get technical, <laughs> but when you read any Bible, you need to be very familiar with them. Right, so that you can identify what you're reading. And so if it is read as westernized prose, where we just read from one line to the next as though it's a long story, then you will miss the parallelisms, you miss the message, and then you're going to have an abundance of questions in reading the chapter. Right now, the, this is actually written like this. The literary structure of the scriptures is like this. Because in contrast to the westernized perspective, where we are accustomed in the westernized world with sermons, where someone pre pre prepares a sermon, and you come, you sit, and you listen to this sermon, and we say amen, and we digest that, 
we go home and we reflect on that. The scriptures are not written from that perspective, from that paradigm. It's written like this, especially in Proverbs, for example. Proverbs, Job, the wisdom literature. Proverbs, Job, um, Ecclesiastes. That's written in a way where it intentionally is structured like that by these Jewish scholars. They have to call them scholars because it's very much, much more complex than English poetry. But um, they are written like that to encourage you to become very logical in your, in your study of the scriptures. So you are encouraged to compare, to invert. A lot of the answers that you'll get in scripture comes by inverting. So the antithetical parallelism where there's opposites, you are encouraged to read it and compare it as an antonym. Find out, okay, if that is the antonym, what is the synonym? So you read it, compare it, invert it, and it gives you the parameters of what is being said. Now, because most of us read it, don't read it like that, we read a very rich text and we bypass these things like a full bus. Boom! And so you're reading Proverbs and it seems mystical, like it's real deep. And it's not because it's not meant to be read like you're reading the newspapers. <laughs> Is that understandable? All right. So I'm saying all of that also to just lend, um, to lend credence to the fact that when you're reading the Bible, you want to slow down, identify these things, compare it, ruminate on it, invert it, look at the synonyms, look at the antonyms, invert the synonyms and the antonyms, and you will grab a lot of things out of that that is enough to create sometimes two to five sermons on by just simply logically uh, uh, um, logically approaching the text right the second thing that we that, that i will encourage all to consider are also things that you want to take to be very mindful of the first is the use of the word and in the bible now when we use the word and in western world in, in our english language we use the word and in the form of an aggregate when i say an aggregate we use it to add one item to the next like fork and spoon you say bring the fork and spoon people know that's one and two bring them together <laughs> bring the fork and the knife you bring that together i'm purchasing a table and chair set it comes table and chair. Those things come together. They are, so it's used in the form of an aggregate. Now, because of the way the Hebrew language is structured, the scriptures are structured, um, this, the, the synonymous parallelisms, for example, they do not, they're just stated one line and then second line. Sometimes one line, second line, third line. And to translate that in English, doesn't really always make sense. So the translators include the word and between the parallelisms. Yeah? So, so you have to be very mindful of that. For example, it says, created me a clean heart and 
renew within me a right spirit. Psalm 51. That word anger is not an aggregate. It's not ceasing. He's not saying two things. He's saying the same thing in a different way. Created me a clean heart and renew within me a right spirit. So heart and spirit are paralleled as one. In the New Testament, we have many different confusions in, 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 in the New Testament. For example, it says when Jesus tells the disciples to baptize, he says baptize, baptize them in the name, singular, of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That's one thing, triplet. Right? Another example of that is spirit and soul and body. That's one thing, spirit. But the amplifications are soul and body. This is actually how these guys speak, where they pretty much layer things. So you have to be mindful of these things. And so because this is not known, people read baptizing in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and they think that's three different things. Spirit, soul, and body, they think that's three different things. And that is not so. We have, with regards to spirit, soul, and body, we have a very westernized Greco-Roman perspective of the, of the human construct, where in the Greek perspective, we have spirit and we have the soul somewhere inside there, somehow connected, moving there, probably exists, probably behind the flesh, probably in front of the spirit or part of the spirit or outside, but we don't know where it is. <laughs> But as a Greek perspective, and so because of those three things, we tend to divide ourselves and put ourselves in self-conflict and a lot of self-confusion. Right? So in the scriptures, just so you know, soul is not something separate in the scriptures. Body plus spirit equals living organism, which is soul. Simple? Yeah, nice. So you want to be mindful of that. And I'm giving context to this because as we go along here, we're going to be covering something and I want you all to identify it also. The word but, we just covered that, is used for antithetical par parallelism. Antithetical, so you compare the first, the first line with the second line as opposite terms. Semicolons. I know I came up from Pentecostalism and we sit down in, we sit, we sit down in the church and we read the Bible and we pass a semicolon, boom, like a bus. And the semicolons are really there to identify parallelism. And so let me be mindful of that. Sometimes instead of using the word and, and sometimes with the presence of the word and, the semicolon is used to identify parallelism. So you want to pay attention when you're reading. Also, colons. Again, as Westerners, we read this and we pass it, boom, like a full bus. And the colons are there to actually give an idea where you see a colon, what was stated before the colon. It's a statement, an assertion, and what follows after the colon is an expansion or an explanation of what they just said. There are thousands of references of these things in the Bible. So I encourage you, I strongly encourage you to pay attention to them. So as you're reading, you do not bypass vital information. And then you have thousands of questions. 
at least 90% of your questions will be cut down by just reading the scriptures through this understanding, through, through the comprehension of its construct. Is this making sense? Nicely. All right. So the third thing, third consideration is the relation between man in the garden and the priests. So last week, we took a look at how the Garden of Eden was not, even though in the westernized community, we read the Garden of Eden narrative from the, from the, from the perspective of um, creation of the cosmos. We made it clear and I posted in the Discord community, there is a, a PDF there that explains the relation of the Garden of Eden to the tabernacle as well as the temple. Identifying the Garden of Eden as a garden temple. And so, if you've seen that, uh, for those of you who are new here today, I encourage you to just go across to the Discord community. It's posted there. You can download the PDF and review it. And it's a bit too much to actually fit into one of these sessions. So, the tabernacle in particular was constructed to reflect the temple, the garden temple. And so just how we had, when, when the tabernacle was built, you had seven speeches, then a Sabbath, and seven acts of God, then a rest. So in the Genesis narrative, you have seven speeches, Genesis chapter one to chapter two, verse three, and then the acts, then a rest. Right? So in the reflection of the garden, the garden Eden, the garden of Eden in the tabernacle, which is why you have already the Garden of Eden imagery posted on the inside and the menorahs that represent the trees of life. Right? Um, in the reflection of that, the priests in the temple are given the same instructions that Adam and Eve, well, Adam was given in the garden when he was, when, when he was placed in the garden, just as he was, to, 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 he was instructed to cultivate and keep it the priest also instructed to do the same in the tabernacle as well as the temple. So, what I want to what I want you to take into serious consideration is that when we go through the New Testament, sons, just as Adam was referred to as a son of God, Luke three thirty eight, identifies Adam prior to his fall, quote unquote fall or his decision. I would like to say, his decision to identify him as a son of God sons of God are not what we know it to be in the Western world. We know sonship in the Western world through the familial structure in our society where you have mother and father and the son and, this, and the father always loves the son and all of that. In scripture, sons are not that. Sons of God are priests. To be a son is a priest. To be a priest is to be a son. So the people that you should be looking at apart from prophets and so on to understand your sonship and the and the 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 privileges and rights that come with sonship would be the priests all right and today we will also identify that right so having said that any questions there so far did i successfully put that in a very nice and compact way and communicate Effectively. <laughs> yeah? Lovely. Okay, Holy Sister Shirley, you want to say something? 
I said yes, you did. Okay, great. Thank you. Thank you. Nice. So I know some of those things may be somewhat new, so the recording will be posted on YouTube so you can review it and approach accordingly. So last week we started with Romans chapter 1, which is 1 to 4. So I'm going to read this here again. Last week we covered what is Christ. Today we're going to be covering what is an apostle. Right? We always hear about the apostles and Paul is an apostle of Christ. We want to identify what that is an apostle and how that relates to you and I. Um, so it says, Paul, a bond servant of Christ, Yeshua, Jesus, called as an apostle, special messenger, personally chosen representative, set apart for preaching the gospel of God. We also identified last week that we were not really using the word God anymore just to keep the context of the, of the scriptures. So that'll be the gospel of Elohim. The good news of salvation, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the sacred scriptures. All right, verse 3 and verse 4, the good news regarding his son, who as to the flesh was born a descendant of David to fulfill the covenant promises, and as to his divine nature, according to the spirit of holiness was openly designated to be the son of God with power in a triumphant and miraculous way by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So if you go back to verse 1, the question that we're asking here is, what is an apostle? Right now, for those of you who are, who have been, well, most of us here are actually very familiar with the Bible, so from your perspective, very briefly, what have you known an apostle to be? When you hear the word apostle, what comes to mind? They plant churches. Say again? They plant churches. One more time? <laughs> <laughs> Not too probably don't forget with that, but that's one of the things that we were taught. What's that? that? They they uh they plant churches oh, and they're the apostle is the one that saw God. Saw so, okay, so you were taught that they saw God and they plant churches. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. All right. Lovely. Tanya. Um Rev learned what what apostle is is someone who preaches the good news. And as Ordelia uh, stated, um they they plant the church or they plant the good news in some body and they oversee um, their, the work being done. Right, right, right. Nicely. Thank you for sharing that. Lovely. Now, you may be a tad bit surprised to know that this, that is actually very much prevalent in all Western denominational circles. That's the understanding that comes with that. But in this, in the Bible and the Scripture, it's not exactly that. Although, what? Say what? Is, <laughs> although, although what you all see there with regards to planting churches and so on, you saw Paul doing. But in the Scripture, it's not exactly that. Right? Now, if you look at the concordance again, 
this is from a Western perspective, we see it as somebody who is a delegate, an ambassador of the gospel. These words are used in the Western culture. And one of the reasons why you see this is used in the New Testament is because Paul in particular was taking this gospel. He was the first one to begin, one of, or one of the first ones to begin to take this gospel outside the circle of the circumcised people, circumcised Jews to the Gentiles. And he was a Roman. Yeah? Born in born born Roman. And so when he's when he's actually stepping outside there, he is communicating these things in terms that they may be able to, re, um, to relate to. Does that make sense? And so we now read it, and when we hear ambassador, we think the ambassador of Tunisia somebody who is representing the country which is involved in the, meeting, in the meaning but not exactly what they're referring to now as we covered in the last in the class in the last session you notice that one of the things that you noticed in my elaboration of when when we elaborated on the perspective of the characters in the bible as well as the as, a, as well as the role and the function of the garden of eden you notice that in some in in well in every way in contrast to what we are custom hearing in the westernized perspective the the new testament is very much anchored in the old anchored in the, in the perspective of the old right that's where it gets that is where it is that is where that is what the new testament's reference point is right another another term that we hear in the westernized community is commissioner of christ right and someone that we is also mentioned to have miraculous powers now in the bible in scripture an apostle is paralleled with high priest mm. Mm. <laughs> That yeah, caught mm. my ears. That's amazing. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, an apostle is actually the word that is related and is used to refer to the context of a high priest. Right. Is also Paul identifying himself as apostle also confirms that by relating his office to the priesthood yeah and i know you read past that like again like a full was boom and you didn't realize that is what the guy was saying <laughs> and most of the times because of the lack of consideration with regards to the construct of his letters All right oh this is the pauline you were going to say something oh no i'm good no all right all right yeah. Nice. Um, who also is hearing that for the first time? Yeah. Mm. All right. All right. Holy brother Ahmed, you saying something? Yeah, I, I, I think me too. I think I listened to it first time. Okay. Okay. All right. So let's now take a look at that. In the New Testament, 
right? Now, to, 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 to find that, we can go direct ourselves to, to, to Hebrews chapter 3. Right, we're reading Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 to 5, 1 to, one to 4. So, so, I think the first five or six verses. So, we're reading from Hebrews chapter 3 in the through the lens of what we just identified. We're just going to identify this here. It says, therefore, holy brothers and sisters, that's you and I, right? And everybody who's reading this letter in Christ, who share in the heavenly calling, singular, thoughtfully and attentively consider the apostle and high priest, that's a couplet, not two things, a scriptural, that's a couplet, a parallel, and that what confirms that is the singularity of heavenly calling, not heavenly callings, but heavenly calling. Consider the apostle and high priest who we confessed as ours when we accepted him as Savior, namely Jesus or Yeshua. Notice it says who share in the heavenly calling, and the calling that is stated there is apostle and high priest. Couplet. Right? Which means if you really want to understand the rights, privileges, the divine function, rather, of the apostle, whom you are sharing that heavenly calling with, then you need to look at the high priest. <laughs> right? The high priest of the Old Testament. Nice. It goes on to say, he was faithful to him who appointed him apostle and high priest, as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. It goes on to say, verse 3 and 4, Yet Jesus has been considered worthy of much greater glory and honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is Elohim, God, Elohim. Verse 5 and 6, now Moses was faithful in the administration of all God's house, but only as a ministering servant, sorry, his ministry serving as a testimony of the things which were to be spoken afterward, to be spoken afterward, the revelation to come in Christ. So basically what they're saying is that Moses was pretty much a foreshadow of what Christ would be, right? What Christ is, sorry, because that's Adam's decision that got them into that position spiritually in the first place. Then he goes on to say, but Christ is, a, is faithful as a son. Notice that son is mentioned here. And when he started speaking, he says, heavenly calling, apostle and high priest, which identifies all sons of God, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters of God as apostles and high priests. Well, in the case of the ladies, high priestesses, right? Faithful as a son of his father's house, and we are his house if we hold fast our confidence and sense of triumph in our hope in Christ. So there we see in Hebrews chapter 3, apostle and high priest are couplets, they are parallels. Yeah? That, that, does, does that make sense so far? No, Zane didn't say that. Eh? That in your Bible. <laughs> yeah. All right, lovely. 
Now, in the, in the same book of Hebrews, if you read along, there is also another reference to sons and priests as one. This is Hebrews chapter 7. It says, I think it's verse 3. Verse 3, it says, without any record of father and mother, this is, of course, referring to Melchizedek. No ancestral line without any record of beginning of days, birth, no ending of life, death. But having been made like the son of God, he remains a priest. As another reference to son of God, priest. In chapter 7, um, sorry, in the previous verses, chapter 3, we saw apostle, high priest, son. Yeah, all parallels. Without interruption, without successor. Now, Paul in particular also makes reference to, he makes reference to himself in the function of priest. In the same book of Romans that we have embarked upon, if you go to Romans chapter 15, verses 15 and 16, It says, still on some points, I have written to you very boldly and without reservation to remind you about them again because of the grace that was given to me from Elohim to be a minister of Christ Jesus. I want you to take note of the word minister of Christ Jesus, the Gentiles. I minister as a priest, the gospel of Elohim, in order that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable to him, sanctified, made holy, and set apart for his purpose by the Holy Spirit or by the Holy Breath. So here we have Paul, who identifies himself at the beginning of this letter as an apostle, is now referring to himself as a minister. And by the way, I'm saying, I, I, actually, I ask you to be mindful of the word minister because in the Western culture, we see a minister in the context of a pastor. But in the scripture, a minister is a priest. That's scriptural, that's Jewish talk. That means priest. If you... If you run a search for minister in the Old Testament, you'll notice that the, that was a word that was attributed to the priesthood alone. The priest would minister. And the priest were also referred to as ministers of Elohim. Yeah? Does that make sense? Everybody following that? <laughs> right? Yeah. Nicely. So... Notice he says, a minister of the, as a priest. And the last thing I want to talk about here tonight is the gospel of Elohim. The gospel of God. Now I'm saying, I'm interchanging the word God here with Elohim. Because again, in our Western culture, we use the word God. And it's very much attached. There's very much attached. A very abstract and mystical perception that we apply to it 
and we lose the essence of what it is communicating. Whereas in the scriptures, when we say, when we use names in the Old Testament, as I mentioned in the last session, names in the scriptures always identify function. So we use God and we don't really know the function. And because of that, some of, some of us say that we are sons of God and we don't know what to do. How do we function? Because of our concept of what God is, that abstract smoky mystical perception but when we say elohim the word elohim means authority so you function in authority it also is the hebrew word that is referenced to power so when we say sons of god what we really mean is sons of elohim which means which is really sons of authoritative power sons of power sons of authority that's why when we speak to sickness we don't say father please help we say get the hands that's an instruction authority does that make sense <laughs> nice so so the last thing that we want to cover here tonight and then i'm going to open the last 45 minutes up for everybody to we're going to pause there because I mentioned in the first session, I'm not going to be building upon building and saturating in the session. We're going to look at these concepts and then we will discuss these concepts and, and then reflect that concept into our lives and see where we may have been a little misguided, not really understanding and how this concept actually brings it into context for you. So it says, I'm a minister as a priest. I minister as a priest the gospel of God. And when he says priest, he's referring to high priest. Right? The gospel of God. Um, and by the way, before we go into the gospel of God, now we know high priest, again, very abstractly because our references for priest come from our society where you have priests in a church. And they carry about, carry on ritual, rituals and ceremonies and so on. You want to get married, you find a priest, you find a minister, <laughs> right? But the context of priest and high priest in the Old Testament also comes with very strong connotations of function. The priest in particular in the temple were given the instruction to cultivate and to keep it. And as ministers of life, what they did was they kept the candles lit, meaning they kept the fires going, so they kept life flowing. Which is why when you when you wanted to be healed, you go by the priest because he's the minister of life. He's keeping and cultivating the temple. Now that Jesus is all and in all, we are the temple, and the earth is actually now reflecting our function. That's why we heal, we raise the dead, and we cast out devils. We cleanse. What we are doing is functioning as priests, replenishing life, filling with life, restoring life, and removing anything that is an hindrance to life. Does this make sense? Does that bring everything into context there in a very nice and compact manner? 
right? Now, the high priest, for those of you who do not know, Holy Brother Paul, you're going to say something? Yes, sir. Want to say that makes sense so much. Okay. Right. Um, so we are Adam and Eve. Again, sorry, not post fall or post decision, pre decision. We are them actually given the God. We are also, we are there with the same function cultivate and keep, replenish the earth, replenish it with life. Now, Again, another component we covered last week was that Adam was his name in the garden was Yahweh Elohim. The name Adam was attributed to the, to the body, but his name and his function was Yahweh Elohim. And Jesus, the Christ, is the restoration of that. Um, so when we refer to high priest, as you've seen in the scriptures, when the people of the Old Testament would approach the high priest, they would refer to the high priest as Elohim, as Yahweh. Because as, as a high priest, he is the embodiment of the God of the temple, just like the Adam was a physical representation of God in all creation. So the high priest in particular functioned as Elohim, physical Elohim. Now, not many people know that in the westernized culture and so we miss like little like for example and i'll give you a historical fact to go with that in the babylon in in, in the talmud everybody here familiar with, with what the talmud is yeah in the talmud yes. there, yeah in the talmud there is actually a story that is actually related in the talmud Considering Alexander the Great, right? Alexander the Great came to conquer Jerusalem, and you know Alexander the Great, he was about these conquests, and so he very, very successfully conquered large portions of territory. Um, he came to conquer Jerusalem. Um, The, the enemies of, is actually written that the enemies of the Jews um, slandered them and claimed that the Jews had rebelled. Right? So Alexander came to deal with that situation, basically. So he approached Jerusalem, and it is, it is recorded in Talmud that when he approached Jerusalem, the high priest, which was, the high priest's name was Shimon, had Sadiq at that point in time, he came out to meet Alexander in full priestly regalia. Right? And when he saw, when Alexander saw the priest, Alexander is reported to have fought, to have dismounted his, his horse and fallen on his face and bowed before the high priest of Israel. Now, think about his generals that stands that actually there and they see the great Alexander for the first time bowing to a man. So they were confused. <laughs> so they actually asked Alexander, why are you bowing before the Jew, before this Jew? And Alexander replied something that really goes hand in hand with the concept of the priests and the high priest. He said, he actually later told them that um, 
upon seeing sorry that Alexander's generals asked him that and he and he responded that every time that he would go to battle he said I see this man in a dream the night before and he assures me that I will be, I will be victorious you were just a bit right <laughs> so Alexander's seeing the high priest in the context of the scriptures, the high priest is the face of is the face of God, because he's the representation of God. So Alexander would actually actually communicate to them that he would have a dream every night before he goes to battle. And this man right here assures me in a dream that I will be, that I will be I, that I will be victorious. Here's a fun fact: later, when Alexander put um, Alexander actually approached the priest. To put his statue in the temple, Alex, statue of Alexander in the temple, which of course would have been contrary to what the temple represents. And the priest in particular, very, very, very um, smoothly, actually made the suggestion that instead of doing that, what he can do is every baby boy that was born that year, they named they named the, the um. The, the, the baby boys or the firstborn, they name them Alexander, which is where we have the names Alex and Sender that has become Jewish names from that little incident right there, that encounter. Now, I'm actually referring to that to lend credence to what the scripture says with regards to the high priest. You are the high priest is actually a representation of God. And so the people that approach the temple and they refer to the high priest as Yahweh. And he would speak to them as Yahweh. Being the representation of God, the image of God. I'm saying all of that to actually bring into context that we, sharing the calling of apostle and high priest, are no different. Right? As, as sons and daughters of God, we are sharing that calling as, as, um, as apostles, ministers, high priests, and therefore we are the image and likeness of God in Christ. Which means this is where we understand how we function. And I, I, I also hope that putting all that information there together even though it's very short and very very compact that has brought some context as to why we function in the way that we function yeah, as priests that keep cultivate and keep does this make sense alright and then the last thing I want to mention was the gospel of God which is the gospel of Elohim which in the context of the scripture is not just good news it is the good news of everyone being restored by jesus in the original context elohim the good news of elohim <laughs> it goes right back to psalm 82 verse 6 it says you are elohim all of you are sons of the Most High. 